0: It is so great to be with all of you today, and um, let me especially welcome um, everyone who's here to uh, celebrate Emily Skate's ordination, uh, her family, and um, especially I just, I want to honor you, Ron, um, seeking to follow in your footsteps as a pastor here. This church has been among the greatest gifts of my ministry, and your faithfulness, your uh, prayerfulness, um, how you have always pointed people to God's word, and I see that. I see that so in Emily. I'm grateful that you're here. In the lead up to Easter, we have been working through the seven deadly sins. Uh, now, before we get uh, to the big daddy of them all, pride, um, there is some question as to whether pride is one of the seven deadly sins or whether it's really the root of all seven. So, if you go back to the uh, Desert Fathers of the fourth century, pride was listed as one of the deadly sins, but there were actually eight deadly sins at the time Uh, it wasn't until Pope Gregory and much later Brad Pitt but Pope the Pope otherwise known as Gregory the Great who listed out the seven vices and he spoke of vainglory vainglory rather than pride which you gotta love a guy who goes down in history with the name Gregory the Great putting vainglory in his top seven now vainglory is not just you know the vanity of staring into the mirror and losing myself in my image and fascinated with one's own image, although that's certainly a part of it. Uh, One day when he was a little younger, my son Wheeler, I walked into our bathroom and there he was just staring into the mirror. Uh, very carefully combing his hair with daddy's comb and there was some clear clear some hair product that was involved as well And he was just focused intently on getting his hair and his part and every little detail just right and finally he said daddy This is how I'm going to comb my hair when I go on my first date when I'm 21 And I said, tell me more, buddy. I really like the sound of that. In fact, let me get my phone so we can record this that I can show you when you're 16 or 17 or 15 or 19, not till you're 21. Okay, that's not the vainglory that we're talking about. What vainglory dials in on is this excessive longing for recognition and approval from others. It's the love of the show, the longing to be noticed. In one sense, it's wanting the glory for myself. So, whether we go with pride as one of the seven or the root of all seven, including vainglory, as we're going to see today, um, this may be the most seductive of all sins. Uh, this is from C.S. Lewis. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other device. It is the complete anti-God state of mind, which raises a terrible question. How is it people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I am afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. And see, what happens when I read or reflect on something like that is I instantly think about all these other people out there in culture or in the news, my news feed, or celebrities, or maybe some of the folks that I run into every now and then who are quite obviously eaten up with pride which isn't that interesting. Pride is the kind of sin that is so much easier to see in others and far more difficult to point out in ourselves, which we're going to come back to that. Well, where did all this begin? Pride, which is the oldest sin, goes back to the creation story in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to be reading here starting in verse 15. Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now I want to keep that up there for just a moment. Notice precisely, in fact, um, can we go back one slide? Notice precisely what God says to the man, you may surely eat of every tree, but one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, God gives the man incredible freedom, incredible liberty. Now, flip the page to chapter 3. And here the serpent, the evil one, comes to the woman now in the garden. And I've been thinking about this. Why did the serpent come to the woman? Why not go to the man and tempt him? Is it because the, that, that women are inherently weaker and more vulnerable to temptation? No. Just a thought. And uh, John Orberg has written about this. When God first gave his command about the trees, right? You are free to eat of every tree in the garden except for this one, okay? Only the man was here, was present to hear it. But the tempter comes to the woman. So you would assume naturally that Eve got her information from Adam, her husband, and that he had updated her thoroughly about the rules of engagement now in said garden. Question for the women in the room. How many of you have ever known a man who did not give you, like, a fully detailed account of what happened to him during the day? Like, maybe when he was at work or, you know, does he ever leave out critical pieces of information that could turn out to be really critically helpful? All right, this never happens in my marriage, but I've heard about this from other people (laughs) as a pastor. Well, the serpent goes to the woman who wasn't directly present to hear from God what God had said, and so here's what happens. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, think back to what we just looked at. Is that actually what God said? You shall not eat from any tree? No, not at all. He said, you are free to eat from every tree but one. So the serpent twists what God said. He bends the truth. In a sense, this is the beginning of all sin. It's the bending, the twisting of God's word. Did God really say? Verse 2. And so the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst or the middle of the garden, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Again, it's a tiny detail, um, but the way this text unfolds, God never said anything about touching the tree. All he said was, Don't eat the fruit from this one tree. So already, page three and you've got humanity adding rules adding prohibitions adding restrictions that god never created in the first place now verse four and this is key but the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die for god knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like god that's the seduction of pride It's the invitation to be like God, this illusion that we can be in total control, that we can be all-knowing, that we can be at the center of our own universe. At its core, pride puts self before God. Pride loves yourself with all your heart and all your might and all your soul and all your strength above and before God. Now, throughout this series, um, we've said that our goal is not just to come down hard on sin and diagnose sin and, you know, so that we can all feel really bad about it and thank you for beating me up, Pastor, so that I can really live into the fullness of Lent. Now, this is not really a series about sin. Mostly, this is about freedom, the freedom that God has already won for us on that first Easter morning and that he longs for us to experience with his son, Jesus. So here's what I want to suggest, and uh, as Uh, Jay, I think, so helpfully introduced in our call to worship. The goal here is to go into training together. And so this is going to lean a little bit practical, but three angles on this path from pride toward humility. And the first is this. The more we struggle with pride ourselves, the more we tend to dislike it in others. If you find yourself uniquely gifted to see the pride in other people's hearts, like you have this radar for arrogance, Or when somebody's being hypocritical or you can just kind of tell that he's slipping into humble bragging here and you're like, like I have the radar, I can see it, the buzzer's gone off and you just know what you're, you're dealing with pride. Could it be that your ability to spot it so well is because you know it so well from within? And this is a challenging word for the church especially. And we've thrown this phrase around before, but we can become pharisaical about Pharisees. We could become a community that pridefully looks down on prideful people. Or we look out of the world, or we look at culture, maybe we look at other Christians or other tribes or churches, and we say, thank goodness we're not as prideful as they are. We're not prideful like them. What makes pride so deadly, you see, is its cyclical nature. The moment you tackle pride, you're dangerously vulnerable to to getting a big head about it. It's been said that one of the hardest things in the world is to stop being the prodigal son without becoming the elder brother. So if you're undone by the pride that you see in others, could it be that God is lifting up a little mirror and inviting you to repent? And this goes for me. I see this temptation. I see this in myself. And so now when I begin to spot pride in someone else, it's like, oh, wait, this this is probably about me. It's in here and I'm the one who needs to repent. So that's the first angle. Second, and this is certainly not original with me, it goes back, I believe, to C.S. Lewis. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not just sandbagging your accomplishments, downplaying yourself in front of other people, or even in your own mind. In fact, we can actually become quite obsessed in negative thinking about ourselves when all this is doing is making us even more consumed with the self. And that's just another form of pride. And you hear people, if you pay attention to this, you'll hear them do it all the time, in trying to be less prideful and more humble, or at least to sound like it, they'll deflect compliments by saying things like, oh, no, 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 it wasn't really that big a deal. Or they'll talk about somebody else, they'll pivot to some other topic. Or when somebody says a really positive word about them, they get really awkward, right, and squirmy, for fear that it might actually look like it feels good to receive a compliment from somebody, God forbid. So take, for example, the following scenario. What is the appropriate non-prideful response when somebody makes a comment about your appearance? Somebody compliments your outfit. Let's say somebody later after the service compliments Jay Lee and says, Jay, you look so good in that robe. You look great in that robe. How's Jay supposed to respond? Option one, look down at the ground and sheepishly say, I'm not really that good looking. It's just the lighting in here is pretty bad. Option two, is he to boldly speak the truth by saying, I'm terribly interested in what you have to say. Tell me more and let us celebrate this good news together. (laughs) Option three, this is sort of the prophetic route. Quote, Proverbs 11.22 to rebuke the complimenter's superficial focus on outward appearance like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without good sense. (laughs) Option four, be direct and to the point. You're feeding my pride. Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Or option five, should he just smile and say thank you and then move on? Somebody offers a kind word, notices your achievement, be grateful, then move on. Don't obsess over it either positively or negatively. Alright, third angle. Again, this is so not profound, which I didn't think about the fact that Ron Skates was going to be here in the front row, and I'm intimidated, and I'm feeling a little vainglorious because I want him to think that I'm theologically deep. (laughs) But third angle, the only way to become humble is to admit that you're proud. That's the only way. In the City of God, the famous African bishop, St. Augustine, writes that the world is made up of these two cities, these two kinds of people. The proud, who think they are humble, and the humble, who know that they are proud. The first step toward humility is the acknowledgement of our pride. Just own it. It's like, God, I see this in other people, um, but I know that it's in here. And it drives so much of what I do every day. Now, some of you if you're anything like me, some of you may be wondering at this point and let me just play this out. It's not so much that I'm like super prideful. I'm just really driven. I'm ambitious. I grew up in a world where nothing was given to me. I had to earn it all. So, it's not so much pride, it's just drivenness. I've shared this with some of you before that when I was in high school, I um, I lived with my mom and stepdad And we went through this stretch where uh, we were facing a lot of challenges. We were broke, um, living from unemployment check to unemployment check. My mom was chronically ill, uh, in and out of hospitals and treatment centers. And I remember one day in high school, um, I took the afternoon off from school and I helped get mom to the doctor, and she knew our story really well. And we were having a conversation um, out in the waiting room, me and this doctor, and she asked me about my future plans, and, you know, I told her that I was hoping to go to college and even potentially be a doctor. And I'll never forget what this doctor said to me. She said, you know, Brian, I wonder, I just wonder with everything that's going on in your life, if maybe, maybe you should temper your expectations a little bit. Like, your family has been dealt a bad hand. And so maybe college isn't the best thing for you right now. And she said, I just, I just don't want you to be disappointed. And man, those words... They lit a fire in my belly, and I mean, I made it my mission in life to prove her wrong. I studied harder, stayed up later, dug deeper. I was determined to prove her wrong. And so my senior year, when I got that, you know, college acceptance letter in the mail, first place I wanted to go wasn't to mom and dad. I wanted to go to the doctor's office and say, how about them apples? (laughs) I didn't do that, but I wanted to. And some of you in this room, you have stories that would blow my story away. And there is this drive inside of you to survive, to overcome. Somebody doubts in you. Somebody doesn't think you have what it takes. And you are going to prove them wrong. So I want to be real thoughtful about this. Remember in that creation story where God put the man in the garden to work it and tend to it and even to have dominion over it. In other words, God doesn't reject the use of power or authority or exercising dominion. In fact, he commands it as holy work. But in the fall, when sin enters the picture, we took something good and we made it into something ultimate. So that now work and productivity and achievement, things that God created us to do, became ultimate things that we placed above God. And the danger of that unchecked ambition is that is that we would gradually begin to believe that we are in control, that we are defined by our accomplishments and our power and our success in the eyes of others. And that kind of ambition, it is an incredible force. But the danger is when our achievement replaces his glory. That's pride, when our achievement replaces his glory. So then a word for leaders. And just to be clear, who in this room is a leader? All of us. God has given you dominion. He has gifted you and called you. Emily may be the only one getting ordained today, but but she's not the only one called into ministry or leadership. Every one of us has gifts and a calling, and God has placed burdens on your hearts that nobody else feels in quite the same way. But all of us are leaders. And I also recognize that for many of you, God has given you significant responsibility and authority in your place of influence, where a lot of people are looking to you for wisdom and direction, and every day there's this challenge. How do you lead well? How do you steward power from a posture of humility? A guy named Russell Razak has written about uh, Abraham Lincoln's emotional intelligence as a leader. And he said, of all the people in the world who face the seduction of things like power and pride, the president of the United States would certainly be one. But the 16th U.S. president was different. Lincoln's humility was a cornerstone of his leadership. This author writes about what distinguishes Lincoln's presidency is how he constantly learned on the job. He got better. He wasn't defensive. He wasn't arrogant about his tasks. He promoted the men who were once his chief rivals to be his closest allies. And then this great line where Razak says, Lincoln was a masterful leader because he was able to master his own ego first. And sometimes a leader's greatest victory is over their own ego. It's something Jesus talked about a lot. And by the way, Jesus was the greatest leader who ever lived. Had the strongest resolve of anyone in history. He was never intimidated. He stood eye to eye with the most powerful men of his day. And one day Jesus says to his friends, whoever among you wants to become great must become like a servant. The remedy to pride is not trying really hard to be humble. It's becoming like a servant. We become more like God, not when we grasp for power, but when we serve. For it is God's very nature to be a servant. That's who God is. From the beginning of creation to the redemption of all things. The triune God who exists in eternal, self-giving, self-emptying love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even when humanity turned in rebellion from God, Jesus came down. He came into this broken world to make himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Nothing tears down pride like serving. And I'll tell you what shapes a humble heart more than anything else. It's when we serve in secret. Serving when no one knows, when there's no credit, no reward, no applause. Nothing transforms a prideful heart like serving in hiddenness. Now for most of us, this is not going to come naturally. We want to be recognized, rewarded. Sometimes this will play out in a marriage. When I I learned this early about Allie. um, Few things delight her more than my willingness to serve. If you're into those love languages thing, uh, her top two love languages are uh, acts of service and acts of service. (laughs) And she'll say things like, Brian, when I see you serving, when you serve me or serve our family or I watch you serve someone else, it it reminds me why I love you. And man, my heart loves to hear things like that. So early on in our marriage, and I'm not proud of this, as you'll see why in just a moment, but uh, one day I got home early from work and I asked Allie to call me when she was on her way home from her office, which she did. And I timed it so that right as her car was pulling into the driveway, I opened up the dishwasher and I pulled out the Swiffer and I picked up a wet sponge and I kind of got, you know, suds all over my arms and just made it look like a mess so that right as she walked into the house, it's like, I'm so, I'm so sorry, honey. Uh, uh, forgive the mess. I'm just trying to get the cleaning done before you got home. Okay? Are you mortified by that? Don't tell me none of you have ever done, never done that before. All right? that's not the kind of serving that transforms a prideful heart. So here's a real simple challenge for this week, between now and Palm Sunday, and then we're going to pray. What's one small task this next week? Is there one act of service that you can do in total hiddenness without anyone knowing? No brownie points, no marriage credit, no. just one act of hidden service. And let's just see what that does to your heart. Let's see what God does to shape your heart through a small act. One, your willingness just to lay down that need to be recognized. And here's the promise. You won't regret it. Nobody regrets a life of serving. It's a one simple act of service done before an audience of one. He knows. He sees what is done in secret. Want to become great? Become like a servant. Kneel down. Take up a towel, a basin of water, wash feet, become less so that Jesus can become your lead story. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, in these moments, we pray that worship for us would be not just in singing, not just in song, but in listening for you, that we might offer ourselves as a living sacrifice so that we might become more like you. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all this in your name.